0: Hey there, Annie and Julie here. We just wanted to pop in real quick before we dive into this episode and announce our new show name. We're excited to announce that we're rebranding the Investing for Good podcast as... The Life and Money Show. Now, this new name reflects the broad focus of our episodes and guests thus far and allows us to tell even more stories about living a meaningful and intentional life by design while also making an impact. We're extremely grateful for your support and listenership as we've grown this podcast and are excited to begin this new chapter so we can bring you even more valuable stories and insights. With that, let's dive into the episode.
1: Storage is kind of interesting though in that it's not just the real estate play. It's like an operating business layered with real estate because the tenants' leases are 30 days. So there's a lot of churn.
0: You're listening to The Life & Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey everyone, Annie Dickerson here together with Julie Lamb. Julie, how are you today?
2: I'm doing excellent, Annie. You know, I was going to ask you, how is your homeschooling going with Kai?
0: It's going well. We're actually homeschooling both of our kids now, and we're doing the unschooling methodology, which is basically you just self directed education. So we just sort of let the kids explore and go deep on what they're interested in. And right now they're both really into Minecraft, which I had never, you know, I have a game design background, but Minecraft was just coming out when I was in game design school back, you know, over 10 years ago now. I didn't know much about it. It It's like this blocky world. I'm like, is it like Legos, but on the screen? And I didn't really understand. But now watching them in there, it's like an incredible, it's a whole world. And you can really do anything in there. So they do all sorts of like experiments in there, architecture, engineering. They like make all these plans for each other and coming up is Eli's birthday. So Kai's going to make this like birthday obstacle course thing in Minecraft. So they're just, they're having a blast.
2: Nice. So Eli's getting Minecraft at five. He like understands. Oh, yeah. It? Cause, okay. Because yeah. <laughs> then I need to tell Chloe she needs to work on her Minecraft skills. She's she's <laughs> almost eight and she can't figure it out. So i got to have a little- <laughs> There's a learning
0: curve girl. for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, anyway, our conversation today focuses not so much on Minecraft, but I guess on building structures. I guess that could be the connection there. <laughs> but on specifically on self storage. And so today we're speaking with Chris Benson. He's the Chief Investment Officer for Reliant Real Estate Management. And you know, I don't know a ton about self storage. I personally have not used a self storage unit. So in this episode, you know, I got to ask Chris a bunch of questions around, well, how does it work? When do people use self storage? You know, how is it so recession resilient as so many people are talking about? So we really got to learn more about how self-storage works and who Mm -hmm. it's right for.
2: Yeah, and I thought it was it's such a great time to be talking about this asset class, as we're moving into a time period of a lot of unknowns. You know, there's a lot of things that we don't know what's going to um, happen in the economy, uh, and so it's a great time to think about diversification. And so, you know, if anyone listening is really into multifamily, it might be a good idea to start thinking about self storage or thinking about you know mobile home parks and just these different asset classes, so that you can take your Pot of gold and kind of diversify it amongst different things. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting when we asked Chris about, you know, what are the demand drivers for storage, um, he kind of listed them. He said they always look at the four Ds, which are uh, death, dislocation, downsizing, and divorce. And when you look at, you know, all of those things, you start to really understand the capacity for the demand in this in this asset class. And uh, it was such a great, interesting conversation with somebody who's been in the business for a while.
0: Indeed. And he talked a lot about how, you know, even surprises can come up when you invest in self storage and red flags to watch out for and the whole gamut. Just so, you know, all of our listeners, if you're getting into this space, this is a great episode to help you get up and running with all the basics of what you need to understand when it comes to investing in self storage. Speaking of which, if you are new to the world of real estate syndications, whether it's in self storage or a multifamily or any other other asset class. A great place to start is with our book. It's called Investing for Good. And we have a free hardcover copy for all of you. Just go to goodeginvestments.com slash book. All right. And with that, let's dive into our conversation with Chris Benson. (laughs) Chris, welcome to the show. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, Chris, I believe our paths first crossed when we partnered together on a self-storage investment a few years ago. And at the time, I knew nothing about self-storage and why it was such a great investment. But as a result of that investment and some others, I now know just barely enough about self-storage, I would say, to be dangerous. But... I certainly don't have the level of expertise that you do when it comes to self-storage, which is why we're so excited to dig in further with you today. So to start us off, tell us how you got into self-storage in the first place. I mean, it seems like such a niche asset class. I mean, did you just stumble into it or had you been involved in other types of real estate investing first?
1: Yeah, it's a fair question. Self-storage now is kind of a a sexy asset class. I mean, people know about it, but, you know, 10 years ago... Self storage is one of those things that no one knew about and was always kind of, you know, out in a rural area behind somebody's house on a gravel. You would
0: never uh, have said spoken self storage and sexy in the same sentence back then.
1: (laughs) that's, That's very true. That's very true. Well, so, you know, my background, I came from other asset classes, primarily residential. We did, we kind of followed the path that many real estate investors find or follow, which is. You know, they're investing in the town that they live in, in some small multifamily, whether it be duplexes or quads or those types of things. And I quickly realized that it was going to be very challenging to scale that business for what I wanted to do personally. And so we ended up getting into some multifamily, both direct. We, we did some of our own projects. We developed a 64-unit apartment complex from the ground up, and then also on the passive side. And so We were investing in some passive uh, multifamily projects across the country as well. And interestingly, what kind of prompted me into self-storage was one of those groups that we invested with, this was almost five years ago now, said, hey, cap rates have compressed to a point where we think we're going to slow, stop buying stuff. And you know, that was five years ago. Cap rates have probably only compressed more so on the multifamily side. And so that really opened my eyes to say, "Eh, maybe I should be looking at some other asset classes along the way here and I'm a data guy, Annie. So there's a data set that I love to reference from the National Association of REITs. And essentially what it tracks is all of the publicly traded REITs across the sphere. So literally, if there is a real estate investment trust that is publicly traded, these guys track it. And the data set is pretty longstanding historically. So, you know, I went back to the National Association of REITs and basically started looking and saying, all right, you know, what asset classes have performed well. Storage did just under 17% over the last 25 years, which is incredible. Outperformed apartments, retail, office. So that was encouraging. And then, you know, the second thing I always look at is I'm a big believer that everything is cyclical, right? So, you know, if it's going to happen, it's probably already happened in the past. You just need to look back far enough to see it. And so, you know, looking back at 2007, 8, 9 at the time was our, you know, most recent economic reset. And storage did really well during that time period as well. Lost less than, I think it was just under 4%. Um, apartments was closer to 7 Retail, you know, 8 9%. Office got double digit loss. And then obviously the S&P 500 got crushed during that same time period. So now I had this historical asset class that had done really well in the past. ANSA had some downside protection. And then the third thing that just kind of doing some homework that I found was, and this is most interesting as far as a a future runway, is the ownership in self-storage is very fragmented. So there are five publicly traded REITs in the space that own about 25% of the market. And then the rest is very fragmented, meaning there's still a lot of one-off owners, what we call mom and pop type owners. And at Reliant, our strategy has really been built around value add type deals, and that's kind of ripe for the picking in that regard. So it really allows for a consolidation or a roll-up strategy type of play. And so for me, that's kind of what brought me to self-storage. I was an investor with Reliant first, just passive investor, and then we had built up a relationship. They needed some help uh, raising capital. And I had had some experience doing that. And so that's kind of where the partnership formed.
0: So, okay. So take us back because there's so much in that story. And I love the data angle too, and definitely want to dig into the value aspect of self-storage. But so, okay. So taking a step back, I think pretty much everybody listening to this call has lived in an apartment before. So they understand multifamily. They get it, right? You go in, you sign a lease, you pay your rent, and that's where the income comes from. There's some maintenance and repairs and maybe some upgrades to the kitchen, the flooring. So people tend to understand that at a pretty basic level. Mm -hmm. When it comes to self storage, I think a lot of people um, don't have that same experience. A lot of people, like I have very limited personal experience with self storage. So can you talk to us a little bit about how self storage works and why it's such recession resistant asset
1: class? Yeah. I mean, it's a garage, (laughs) right? I mean, at at its most basic level, it's either a heated and air-conditioned garage or a non-heated and air-conditioned garage. So, I mean, I think it's rooted in the idea that Americans don't get rid of stuff, right? You know, when times are good, people buy more stuff and it goes into storage, right? And when times are bad, people have this, you know, mindset that they're going to someday need that and they don't get rid of it. And Annie, I can't tell you that I am a personal purveyor of self-storage. I, you know, I have a house with a, a big basement and a couple of garages. And so I don't use a storage unit. We we actually have a, a boat and a trailer that are in a storage unit because our neighborhood won't let you have them there. But other than that, we don't use it. And you know, it's interesting. We talk about kind of the four D's of demand when it comes to self-storage. And those are death, dislocation, downsizing, and divorce, right? generally all that rolls up into transition. If you have transition in your life, generally you have a need for self storage. When we moved from New York to Georgia, you know, we had 3 self storage units where our stuff was before we bought a house. So, and that was part of the transition in our lives. So, you know, that's generally what drives it and and when you talk about the recession resiliency part, Fortunately for us, unfortunately for the general population, you know, COVID's a great example, right? We're recording this mid- end of February, co- st- very much still on the throes of COVID. Well, if you think about those four Ds, generally COVID is creating more of all of that, even the divorce piece. So we have an investor who runs one of the largest divorce practices in the state of New Jersey. And 2020 is the best year he's ever had. And he's in his late 60s. He's been in business for 60 plus or 25 plus years. So You know, it has created a lot of all of those four D's, and and we've certainly been the beneficiary of that. You know, the second thing to think about is it's a relatively small amount of your disposable income. You know, when you think about a storage unit, think 100, 150 bucks for a 10 by 10 type of unit, depending on the market you live in. Certainly, you know, some of the larger Metroplexes, it's larger. But so it's like a gym membership. It kind of gets pushed down on the bucket list of things to cancel, and it's usually auto debited. And so people just forget about it. It's just there. It just happens. And, you know, generally not motivated to go move their stuff.
0: Yeah. It seems like a big hassle. If you've got like a boat in there or like, you know, all these yearbooks from high school, like the last thing you want to do when you're going through one of the, you know, the big life changes have to go in there and go and move everything out, figure out what to do with it. So remind us again of those four D's.
1: Yeah, it's death. Death. Dislocation, downsizing, and divorce.
0: Okay, so often that's what kicks somebody into st- getting a self-storage unit in the first place. And then, what do you see? Do people tend to stay long term? Is it usually like a you know three to six month window that they're staying, or usually are people holding their stuff in there for years at a time?
1: Yeah, it's market specific, Annie. I mean, you know, you think of your self-storage customers two distinct groups, right? One is residential, right? So you know, I would be a residential customer if I'm going and you know, to your point, storing my high school yearbooks in there. And then we have commercial tenants, right? So people who are running small businesses essentially out of their storage units, sometimes they're using it for equipment storage. You know, we have some, uh, just as an example, we have online retailers and that's their warehouse space. So, you know, it really depends. Generally the commercial tenants are staying longer somewhere in that 24 to 28 month range, the residential tenants, usually a shorter term stay, 12 to 14 months is, is generally where we see our portfolio, but there are some markets where that could be shorter or, or longer.
0: Got it. And then when you say that you're buying these with an eye on the value add potential, so I'm thinking, right? So I'm thinking, I have very little self-storage experience. I'm thinking, okay, you're renting out these basically empty garages. What could there be to value add? So tell us a little bit about that.
1: We put hardwood floors and granite countertops. And, yeah,
0: that's what I figured. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, and just charge more rent. The value-add, it's not a cookie-cutter approach, Annie. You know, each value-add strategy is different based on the property. And I would kind of put them into three categories, right? So the first one that probably makes the most sense for everybody is expansion, right? If we feel like we're in a market where the demand outstrips the supply, you know, we may build out an additional, let's say, 20,000 square feet of climate-controlled storage and the value add component there really is getting those units full and that's the growth in income and NOI that we're shooting for right so putting a shovel in the ground is one level of value add you know another value add could be what we call management improvement value add so especially with a lot the smaller mom and pop type operators there's some ancillary income items that you can that we would consider our low hanging fruit that sometimes just smaller operators don't take advantage of right things like U-Haul truck rental, you know, uh, point of sale, retail items, tenant insurance programs. Those are things that require some work and infrastructure to support. And so many times the smaller operators won't do that, but there's nice revenue streams there available for the operator to take advantage of. So sometimes the value add may be that or a combination of those two things. And then the third value add many times is lease up. We'll contract with the seller who maybe is in the midst of an expansion to buy a property at certificate of occupancy or an expansion at certificate of occupancy. So, you know, we're buying, you know, cash flowing asset, maybe one of the buildings is brand new and empty. And so the value add there really is getting it from zero to occupied. And I think it's very property specific, you know, from reliance standpoint, we're kind of opportunistic in that. There is no cookie cutter approach to everything. It's hey, here's where we think the value is in the asset. Let's execute on this business plan to do it.
0: Got it. And so now that we understand self storage a little bit better um, and how it works, so let's shift gears and talk about the so the from a passive investor standpoint. And you start. You said you had started out as a passive investor, and so from a passive investing standpoint if I'm looking at two different opportunities, multifamily versus self-storage, you know, what are some of the things that I should be thinking about in terms of why I should invest in one asset class versus the other? What are some of the things that drew you to self-storage? And then also, what are some of the risks to be aware of?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't know if you can kind of do an apples to apples comparison. They're different asset classes, right? And so you know what I always say with investors as we're having conversations is the story has to make sense to you, right? You know, if you've used self storage for five years and you have those units that you never go to and you don't even know what's in them anymore, well, maybe self storage makes sense to you. You know, I think there's definitely some advantages to uh, to multifamily as well, right? Everybody's got kind of their own thing, so it's not like a hey compare contrast. I, I think it's more so why self-storage makes sense to a lot of people is the reasons we had already talked about, you know, and, and most people kind of fall back to this recession resiliency idea. And what's happening now, Annie, is, you know, we've had 2007, eight and nine, and then through COVID storage has performed very well as well. So now you have these two really distinct economic cycles that storage has done well in. And so you're seeing a lot of interest come to the space Especially on the institutional capital side, right? The larger institutional investors are saying, oh, this is really interesting. That looks like a safe place to deploy money. So, you know, I think as an investor, it's more comes down to the operator, right? And, you know, uh, the asset class that makes sense and the track record that that operator has.
2: So, I have a question. I'm, I'm kind of curious to learn a little bit more about kind of similar to what Annie's asking, but. I'm curious about how you all evaluate potential opportunities that you're looking at. Talk to us about that. What is, you know, what are the different strategies you look for? What are the, how do you select a market? How do you identify a good opportunity?
1: Yeah. So, and I hate to give you the answer of it depends, but it kind of depends. So, you know, the, the one thing that's different, Julie, in storage than, you know, potentially multifamily is the, the MSA level data, the market level data is not as important, right? With storage, it's the one, three and five mile radius around the facility that matters most. Because if you think about it, again, we're renting a garage. So if it's not convenient to work or home, you're not gonna travel for a specific self-storage facility where apartments you may, right? It, it's in the right school district or convenient to you know, shopping or maybe a downtown kind of nightlife feel, you may travel 15 minutes out of your way to live there. With storage, what really matters is that micro market around your facility. And so, you know, Julie, we're looking at the same demographic trends that any asset class is looking at, right? So population growth and job growth, average income, traffic count at the site, those types of things. But if our acquisitions team was on the line with us, what they would talk about is they try to build a story, right? There's no one Magic metric that says this is a great deal. You know, if the supply is under X, then it's a great deal. It's generally true that if supply is under a certain number, it's probably going to be good, but that it doesn't hold true across the board. So, what we try to do is take a little bit of information on the market and come together with a story that says, okay, here's why we want to be here. You know, potentially we've had great population growth the next the last 5 years and it's projected to be strong the next 3 right because we have these employers in the market there's five competitive facilities in a 3 mile radius and all of them are 90% full and that's a pretty good indicator that there's strong demand in the marketplace and you know this particular market may also have some geographic considerations compared to the rest of our portfolio which may allow us to create some advantages when we go and um, sell the asset where it's tied into a number of other properties that we already own, right? So when we go and sell them, it's not one individual site, it might be a portfolio of properties that we're rolling up. And there's a premium on the pricing side for that portfolio level transaction. So, you know, I think we're looking at a little bit of everything. The the one thing I would ask, you know, you and your listeners consider is, it's really that micro market or sharpshooters game, to find in that one, three and five mile radius, the key metrics that you're looking for.
0: So with that in mind, then are you, as you're looking at new opportunities, are you looking at major markets all across the country? And then when you find a potential opportunity, you're honing in on that micro market, or do you have specific micro markets picked out and then you just go after the self-storage facilities that are already in those markets?
1: Yeah. It's kind of a little bit of both. So, you know, we have 48 properties right now in the portfolio spread across eight States, right? And primarily those eight States are in the Southeastern part of the U S Florida, Georgia, Carolinas, Alabama, Tennessee. And so, you know, generally for us, because we're vertically integrated and managing the properties we own, we're also trying to think geographically about, all right, if we're buying a new asset, do we have the operational infrastructure to support it close by? So usually that's a good starting point. If it's in a market that, you know, we're already in or close by, that's usually interesting to us. And then to your point, Annie, we're digging in once it kind of passes that first eye test. And then there are a few markets that we're specifically targeting, saying, okay, you know, we'd like to be in the Charlotte submarket of, you know, it depends, Lake Wiley, right? Or Midland, North Carolina. And, and we're seeking out assets in those particular properties. Or in those particular uh, markets. So it's kind of a combination uh, of both.
0: Got it. And then you talked about vertically integrated. So I think a lot of people probably are wondering well, if you're renting out an empty storage unit, is there property management? Is there a leasing staff? Is there maintenance staff? So talk a little bit about that. Do most, well, you guys are vertically integrated, but do you have that? Does that mean you have a property management layer in there?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, so Reliant, we have 130-ish employees, and the majority of them are out on the sites, right? Those are the people behind the desk greeting you when you walk in. Yes, it is a garage. Storage is kind of interesting, though, in that it's not just the real estate play. It's like an operating business layered with real estate, because the tenant's leases are 30 days. So there's a lot of churn, You know, we're constantly churning tenants, different than multifamily, right? Where, you know, it's a 12-month lease generally. And so you have that tenant locked up. And so, you know, there's a lot of operating business type things that are happening because there's always customer interaction and movement. You know, think like marketing and just overall tenant service. And, you know, although we don't have, you know, toilets and uh, light fixtures to change in each, each unit... You'd be amazed when you have 500 to 1,000 units on a property, all of the things that can go wrong along the way. So, you know, people have this like a dream of like, oh, self-storage is great. You know, there's no maintenance, no toilets to unclog, you know, generally true, but there's still plenty of stuff to do. But there have been some operators, Annie, that have experimented with what we would call kiosk models, especially in smaller rural markets where literally there's no people on site. And you do everything through a call center and a, a touchscreen kiosk. And, you know, the goal there is to try to reduce payroll costs to the you know, bare minimums and maximize the operational. So there's some platforms across the country. A company called Red Dot Storage does that at pretty big scale, specifically in some of the smaller rural markets.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that seems like a a great model if you can uh, lower those payroll costs and not have anybody on site, but still provide that same level of service. so I wanted to go back. You said something about churn. So you said most of these tenants are, I guess, do you call them tenants or do you call them? Okay. So the tenants are on a month to month lease for these units. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's the downside, right? Because they could leave at any time, but I believe there's also an upside to that. Is that correct? Where you can, you know, you don't have to wait the full extent of the 12 month multifamily lease in order to raise the rent. You can sort of raise it at any month during that time. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, you got it. I mean, there's definitely risk on the downside in that you can dump out a lot of revenue all at once, right? 30 days, 30 days. But the upside is if you're in a market that's moving very quickly, you know, you can have rents pace that as well. So, you know, how we think of our occupancy is generally stabilized for us is between 85 and 88% full. And if you're over that, it means your rents are too low because what happens is, you know, let's say we're 95% full, well, then I don't have any units to rent at a higher rate for the next person who comes in, right? We're basically full. And so there's no units available. Now in multifamily, that's usually great. Everybody's shooting for that, right? In multi, or in cell storage, we're kind of shooting for that 85 to 88 and always playing the game of rates versus occupancy with the goal of maximizing the economic occupancy versus the physical, and so what we're trying to do is always have enough units available that we can bring new people in at a higher rate than the person who potentially was in there before. But to your point, it, it allows you a lot of flexibility in moving revenue quickly, but there's downside risk to that as well.
3: Mm.
0: And do you ever deal with, you know, similar to multifamily, like uh, an eviction or, you know, like the, the show storage wars, you know, like, does that ever come into play where you might have a non-paying tenant who's got all their stuff in there? So then what do you do in that case?
1: Yeah. It's the interesting part about storage and storage wars is kind of, I don't know, fantasy that made it a fantasy. <laughs> world. It's not as exciting as the show uh, would suggest, you know, and, and it's kind of a pain for us, but if you think about it this way, our rents get collateralized with their goods, right? So our bad debt is very, very low as a percentage of revenue. Because if Annie, if, if you have a storage unit full of stuff and let's say, you know you go two or three months without paying and it depends on the state and we will overlock your unit and then we go and end up auctioning it. And that's what you're describing with that Storage Wars TV show, right? They're auctioning a unit and depending on what's in it those people go in and sell all the stuff. Well, whatever you buy the unit for usually reimburses the rent that we're owed. We don't make money on that. So let's say you pay a thousand bucks, and you know you owe us five hundred, or someone buys your unit for a thousand bucks, and someone owes us five hundred dollars in back rent. We get our five hundred dollars. We pay the auctioneer, and then the other remaining dollars go to the tenant. We have to, you know, that goes to them. So there's no profit center there. But what it does do is if you evict a person out of a multifamily, out of an apartment and they don't pay you, you got to go chase them. And there's a pretty good bet that they don't care about their credit at that point, And they're probably not going to pay you. With us, we at least have a shot at recouping some of those back pay rents by selling your unit. And you know, it doesn't always cover the cost of what the back rent is, but generally our bad debt ratio is, is very, very small.
0: Hmm. That seems like a great risk mitigation strategy. Are there other risks that investors should consider when getting into self-storage? I know you mentioned doing your due diligence on the operator, making sure the the micro market. Are there any other risks that people should be thinking about as they're considering getting into self-storage?
1: Yeah. And one more thing to say just about the auction piece too is, It it is a great risk mitigation tool, you know. but it's an interesting, it it also creates just interesting dynamics on the site when you have three or four units being auctioned there. It doesn't always look great for other people coming in. You know, just kind of, it's always a balance. I would say the number one risk in the asset class is really new supply. So, you know, in real estate, we're really good at overbuilding things. You know, if people make money on it, other people are going to follow, right? And so storage, especially after two thousand seven, eight, and 9, there's been a a very large development cycle through, you know, specifically 17, 18, 19, where there was a lot of new supply being delivered to the market. And really that's the biggest risk. You know, COVID, pre-COVID, that's what we worried about. During COVID, you know, after kind of Q3 of last year, we went back to worrying about new supply because it looked like COVID wasn't going to have as much of an impact, You know, and what that means is literally Annie, you know, you buy a facility year one and let's say it's a five year hold. Well, we generally can underwrite the amount of new supply coming to market day one, but call it year three, year four. There's, you know, if somebody builds a facility down the street, you know, that's a tough scenario and it's basic supply and demand economics, right? Where if somebody has an empty building they're gonna drop prices to bare bottom to try to get that facility full. And so really, we've had some markets that have been impacted by that. And and really, that's the risk you got to be most thoughtful of. We've been fortunate in that most, well, all the markets have come back eventually, right? So as those empty properties start to stabilize, the revenues all start to come back up because they have to make money too. And then, you know, we kind of bounce back. But there's definitely a period of time there where it can hurt the performance of the properties.
0: You mentioned a five year hold. so is that typically the around the length of your syndication investments, and what happened? What do you guys do um, as far as the business plan during that time?
1: Uh, are you saying business plan to exit Annie or what yes,
0: like what are you doing? Uh, like we talked a little bit about the value add. so are you are you seeking to like um, maximize efficiencies as quickly as possible so that you can turn around and sell it in three years? Or is it more of a, let's hold it for a while as the the values increase and it's a longer play?
1: Yeah. Generally we're going to project a, a five to seven year hold, you know, somewhere in that range. We've sold 38 properties in our history and our average hold times just over three and a half years. So it's been a shorter term hold. I mean, if someone will give us you know, let's call what we project a six-year stabilized value in year three, then generally we'll look to, to sell those assets. And, you know, our buyers are generally institutional capital or the REITs. We sold 16 properties last year. Two of them were to an operator backed by Blackstone, and 14 of them were to one of the publicly traded REITs. So, you know, that's generally been our exit on the backside. The product and the business plan that we're trying to execute has been uh, pretty attractive on the disposition side of things, uh, specifically from the REIT community. So, you know, we'll, we'll see as the next couple of years rolls out how much institutional capital interest there is, because there's a lot right now. It's a very frothy market, and we'll see if that institutional interest continues to, to be there. But generally, that's who we look to on the exit side of things.
2: Real quick, I wanted to ask Chris, what does the worst deal that you guys have done look like? We always hear about the best deals, right? I think as investors, we always hear about the successes and the wins, but very not too often do we get to talk about and dig into sort of the nuances of a deal that maybe has gone bad. So can you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, for sure. Fortunately, we haven't, you know, the worst case scenario is you lose a property to the bank, right? And And when a property goes poorly, kind of look at it with three three lenses, right? You can turn it over to the bank, which nobody wants because everyone loses their principal. You can try to refinance it if you believe in the market long-term and it just needs a little bit more time. Or, you know, the third option is you can try to redeem out the investors and maybe get a new group of investors in there. So, you know, Julie, what I would say is from a worst case scenario, we've never lost a property to the bank yet. You know, that may happen. I mean, if you're in the game long enough, it generally, it could happen for sure. But I would say that, you know, one of the worst ones that stands out to me is a, a property that is in the state of Georgia in Buford, Georgia. We actually don't own it anymore, but this goes back to my conversation around the supply side. Literally uh, within a three mile radius in the period of 18 months, we had 3 reopenings re-openings of new facilities in a three mile radius, right? And so at that point, Rates, it's a free fall, right? It's literally race to the bottom. Who can charge the cheapest amount of money to try to get rentals in there? And for three years, while those facilities were filling up, we were just languishing. And, and that property in Buford, Georgia was a great property previous to this new development, right? It was stabilized, had a you know good cash flow, and revenues were strong. And you know it just got in the midst of this new, new development. And Julie ended up, what ended up happening, that was a property we owned with an institutional partner a a larger private REIT that got rolled up into a portfolio sale that, you know, ostensibly we sold as part of a packages of another package deals. And, you know, ultimately it turned out okay. You know, uh, certainly not what was originally projected, but that was the one that stands out in my mind as one of the ones that, you know, Look, for investors, it's a hard conversation to say when things aren't working correctly. And that one was sort of a, I'm not sure what what you want us to do. We either sell it and take it on the nose now, or we kind of hang on to this thing and see if we can string it out and everybody comes back to stabilization, which is ultimately what we did.
2: Right. So two questions. One, you had mentioned that one of the things that could happen that hasn't happened as of yet, but that could happen at some point is that you have to return a deal to the bank. I get this question pretty frequently, and I would love to hear your answer to this question as it relates to storage. What would cause that to happen? Is it decrease in occupancy where you're not able to make your debt payments? Is it that simple? Or what are some of the other factors that maybe come into play where that scenario could happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a very much it depends scenario, but generally, usually you lose the property of the bank when you can't pay the mortgage, right? It's no different than your home. If you have a mortgage on your house, and you don't pay your mortgage, the bank's going to come foreclose on it. No different on the commercial side. I think it speaks to, Julie, you know, why leverage ratios are important, you know, what loan-to-values you're betting on. The other way it could happen is, let's say you had a, a three-year, or let's say a three-year loan on a property, and you levered it up. It was an 80% loan-to-value. And when that loan came due in year three, there was a correction in the marketplace and values dropped. Right. Well, when you look at that lender, the lender is going to call their loan and say, All right, pay us off. It's year three, and you can't go refinance that property, right? Because your value is not enough to cover that uh, original debt. And so, in those cases, you can lose. And that's what happened in 2007, eight, nine. You had a hot, lot of highly leveraged properties that, even though they're great properties, the values dropped so much that when debt was coming due, you either had to pay off your loan which most people don't have the liquidity to do or get a new loan to cover it, right. A refinance. And if your values aren't there to refinance, then it makes it really challenging to do that. So there were a lot of properties in 2007, eight, nine that, that they lost because of that. So, you know, to answer your question, I would say generally it's because of the mortgage payment, you know, occupancy drops or revenue drops to a point where you can't cover debt service. And maybe you make a capital call to investors and, you know, The investors choose not to capital or to uh, bring additional capital in, but for whatever the reason, you can't cover that debt service, and that's really you know the worst case scenario from an investor standpoint.
2: What's the typical LTV that you guys have across all of your forty eight deals?
1: Between sixty five and seventy percent. I'd have to go back. I don't know, Julie, the the active LTV right now across the portfolio. You know, I could tell you like the last fund we did was 11 properties at 68%. So mm-hmm. totally we are right in that window.
3: Okay.
2: And then my other question was around the, the Buford deal. So you mentioned that within a three mile radius, there were three reopenings of o- older facilities. How do you going into a deal mitigate that potential for risk from happening again? What are some things you look for? How do you evaluate that on new opportunities?
1: Yeah, for sure. I'd say the first thing is just part of our general strategy, which is, you know, we've really pushed into some of the tertiary markets. And the reason is because on paper, they're not attractive to anyone. Right. So if you look at those demographic trends that everybody looks at, right, you know, everyone knows that Austin is exploding. Right. And when you as a developer look at Austin, you're like, ah, I got to be there. But so does 99% of everybody else. And so those yields just get pushed down so far because the pricing is so high. Julie, for us, I would say at the highest level strategy, generally those secondary and tertiary markets are seeing less development at the high end. You know, to answer your question about mitigating risk, sometimes it's there are municipalities that have put moratoriums on new storage development. So you can go into that market kind of grandfathered in and, you know, they've had so much development in the last five years. They're saying, Hey guys, no more. We don't want any more of this in our community, uh, which is great. If you can, you know, if you can find those things, uh, obviously that's fantastic. And then, you know, what we're trying to do is understand generally, if you look on a map, you know, where any new developments coming, right. Especially for storage, right. You know, what those developers are going to look for, and you can see kind of where infill locations are. You know, one of the things that our acquisitions team does is we'll geomap every tenant where they live. So before we buy the property, we can see where the tenants are coming from and then look at the available land and say, okay, if somebody develops here, are any of our tenants coming from there? And and there's all these interesting natural barriers that exist: bridges, highways things that for whatever reason people don't drive by, you know, if you're on this side of the highway, you do all your business this way, if you're on, you know, the other side of the highway, you do all your business that way. And so that's part of it too is just understanding where that risk may be. But ultimately, Julie, there isn't a lot of concrete ways to mitigate it, right? If someone's going to buy a building and knock it down and put a storage facility there 3 years from now, if the municipality is going to let them do it, I hate to say, you know, we can't do anything about it, but You can't do anything about it. So it's really always going to be that constant struggle against, you know, the information we can underwrite upfront versus what may happen five years down the road.
2: Makes sense. Makes sense. Such great information here. I think a lot of this are pieces that I have put together when we first got into the storage arena and is such great information because I think a lot of people just know What we've already talked about, which is that storage is resilient, you know, in the face of a downturn. And so a lot of people turn to storage for that one fact. And they do a little bit of digging, but it's these little nuances that we've been able to dig in today, I think that really allow people to make an educated investment decision, which is what Annie and I always talk about when we talk about getting into investments is make sure that you guys are doing your due diligence. Don't just trust what's being provided to you, but really dig. And a lot of the stuff that we talked about here today, I think will give investors the information and the the power that they need to be able to make these educated decisions about storage. So such a great conversation love all of that. So we're going to move into now our impact round life and money show impact round. We're going to ask you a couple of questions around life and money. So the first question is, what is one thing that you are doing right now to live a meaningful and intentional life by design?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So not to get too personal, but I turned 40, I'll be 41 in March. So I guess it, I'll be 41 in next month. So, you know, it's interesting as you get older, kind of, this was a significant milestone I think we all have kind of in our lives, right? Where you're halfway, right? I mean, you're halfway through your life and, you know, rough and tough, I'm probably going to live till around 80, you know, and after that, I don't know how much more I want to live anyways. But, you know, how I think about it is what do I want the next half to look like? And, you know, Julie, your question around intentional living is something I've written in my journal. And, and for me, it's really built around, you know, meaningful work and meaningful relationships, Right there's not too much more that's going to matter. I've been fortunate to make some money along the way and and that doesn't make me very happy, but the meaningful work and relationships is really, I think what I'm trying to build around and it's the lens at which I look at almost everything, right? So if somebody says, hey, Chris, do you wanna do this? Usually that's the first lens, the first check. It's like, well, that doesn't fit in either of those. No, I'm not gonna do that. It's made it really easy to make decisions on things because it's a pretty black and white decision-making tree.
2: Right. I love that. I love all of that. It's so much of what drives Annie and I is having, being able to say that we get up and we're doing something that's meaningful and we're doing it on purpose. We're not just doing it by default. And Annie and I have really worked hard to, you know, design and strategize our lives around, you know, making that impact, not only in our investors' lives and the community, but also in our own lives with our family too. So I love, I love that. All right. Second question is, what is one life or money hack that you might be able to share with the audience that'll make an impact in their lives right now?
1: If you've not looked at overfunded whole life cash flow policies, you should. <laughs> it's my most recent adventure, and I worked for Northwestern Mutual in college. So like, I understand life insurance. I was a college intern for two and a half years. I sold life insurance, I understand the stigma that goes attached to it. But if you frame this discussion as an alternative to cash, not as an investment vehicle, there are some really interesting strategies that you can get involved with. And I'm gonna throw a few disclaimers. One, you have to have the right agent who is structuring the policy for this methodology as opposed to maximizing commission. And that is a key component. Happy to pass along the guy that I use if people wanna reach out, he's great. But what it allows you to do at a very high level is essentially be your own bank. So if it's money you're going to spend, let's let's assume Annie, you know, you're going to invest one hundred thousand dollars in passive investments this year. Well, once you invest that hundred grand, it's gone. You don't have it anymore, right? And what these whole life policies, kind of an infinite baking type scenario, do is you're double dipping. So. You can put that 100 grand in the life insurance policy, and there's some cost there, right? Death benefit, you're paying insurance costs. I understand that, but you can lend against that cash value. You're still making the coupon in the policy. You're taking that interest rate from the bank who lends against it. It's tax write offable. And you can take that money and go invest it in something that hopefully is going to produce income. So you're double dipping, you're still making money on your original money and your money's out deployed doing something in a passive multifamily deal or self-storage deal. So that's my most recent, I guess I would call it investing hack. I don't know if it's a hack, but it's just me educating myself. There's a book called What Would the Rockefellers Do that really does a good job of explaining this whole methodology and you know, happy to direct people. I don't sell life insurance, but happy to direct people to do if, if they're interested.
2: Love it. Yeah, that's definitely something that we've talked about multiple times here on the Life and Money Show. We've had a couple of guests talk about life insurance. Both Annie and I use it as well to give all of our investments a little bit of a boost. And we also most recently did a webinar with one of our favorite life insurance guys to talk about how it works. And you're right. You hit the nail on the head. The biggest thing is make sure that you are working with somebody who knows how to structure the policy in the way that you want to use it. Because if you don't, then it totally negates the whole purpose of setting it up. But I I love that. Love that so much. Like I said, Annie and I both believe in it and do it as well. Um, All right. Last question is, what is one thing that you are doing right now to make the world a better place?
1: Yeah, that's a good one. I think that's one of those kind of intentional things. I mean, from a a volunteering standpoint is we have two kids, uh, we have two boys. So, you know, I hate to use the word busy, but that's what we are, right? It's just busy. And so I think the best thing that we can do right now is a little bit of time and a little bit of money. That's generally where deploying capital and human capital to try to make the world a better place. There's a couple local community charities here in Fulton County, Georgia, where we are that we participate with on both sides. And, you know, the impact is is palpable. We try to think about our charitable stuff based on the community that we live in. So that's where we like to deploy the, the time and capital.
0: Love that community is where it's at. And, you know, Julie and I are the same in the same boat with young kids. So yes, we definitely can understand that busy lifestyle, but love that you're still taking time to lead by example and show your kids how to give back as well. So Chris, we've talked a lot about self-storage and whole life insurance. There's so many different things today. I'm sure our listeners are going to want to follow up with you and learn more. So what's the best place that they can go to follow up with you and dig in further?
1: Yeah, our website is probably a good place to start, ReliantInvestments.com. If you're trying to reach out and learn more about the platform, investment opportunities, those types of things, certainly the website's a good place to start. And you know, there's all kinds of contact us buttons and you can get in touch with us. We're pretty active on LinkedIn too. If you just Google Chris Benson, LinkedIn, Reliant, somewhere like that, you'll find our profile page. We do a fair amount of posting there. I don't talk about whole life insurance there, but maybe I'll start. I I should have came to your webinar sooner and then I I would have been ahead of the game. But yeah, uh, those are probably the two best places.
0: All right. Excellent. Well, we'll have all of that for our listeners in the show notes. Chris Benson, Chief Investment Officer for Reliant Real Estate Management. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Chris.
1: Thank you, guys. Appreciate the opportunity. Hope you have a good rest of the day.
0: You've been listening to The Life and Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth,
2: and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com
0: and be sure to join the Life and Money Show community on Facebook. And if you got value out of this show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations.